And the passage tonight is a unit of text that wants us to meditate, reflect on what the path of wickedness is like and leads to. And I mean beneath the superficial veneers of sin, where sin would want to make things glitter, like bait in a water that draws the fish, but sin is bait with a hook in it. We've thought about this image before, and in the book of Proverbs, the reader, the initial son and all of those since, are called to reveal and expose sin for all that it is, and it is good for us to consider the consequences of wickedness. What is the toll that sin takes? Part of a quote I read to you this morning for, Proverbs, for Psalm 31 uh, was about the destructive nature of sin in our own hearts and minds. Sin is dehumanizing. Sin is dehumanizing for us. And if we pursue it and give our hearts to wickedness, we can rest assured the Proverbs will hold true that we are on a path of destruction and great folly. We need to look at this unit after having looked at verses 20 through 24, which focused on the benefits of righteousness. The benefits of righteousness. Noticing how the writer seems to have arranged these units, verses 20 through 24 helps us focus on the benefits of righteousness, and then verses 25 through 30, the horror of wickedness. And we need to think about both. We need to be people who would consider the question, why is it that God calls us to walk in a manner of righteousness? Why is it that the pursuit of justice and love, why is it that walking humbly before God and in submission to His Word, why is that good for me? And why is it that pursuing a path of folly and rebellion, why is it that rejecting the words of God, why is it that ignoring sound counsel around me, why is it that following the desires of my heart, why is that a bad idea according to the Bible? And this is helpful for us because we are not only as individuals to think about these things, I think it helps us disciple others. One of the most important features of discipleship is helping people think through, biblically and theologically, a way of evaluating their lives, the choices that are in front of them. We don't want to just say to someone, uh, well, this is what I think you should do, without explaining, well, here's the way I'm looking at it. Here's some of the wisdom to consider. Here are the questions to ask, the, the facets to evaluate. Helping people process decisions through a worldview saturated by the Bible. We want to prohibit people from wickedness. We want to warn about the cost of ungodliness. And therefore, we need to think about the consequences of it. Verse 25 opens with talking about the path of the fool. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. I am limiting this here. To the, to the warning toward the fool and not people in general that would be comprised of the righteous and the wicked. Because this path in verse 25 is one that seems to be one thing, but it turns out to be something different, and its end is death. This, therefore, is not addressing the path of the righteous, which is the path of life. This way to death is not just physical death. But all that the wages of sin in a post-Genesis 3 world will mean for us as God's image bearers gone astray. There is a way that seems right. We saw this proverb in chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And from time to time, you will notice parts of Psalms or parts of Proverbs that appear in one section of the book and are repeated later. I don't think that's because the writer forgot that he mentioned it earlier. 
I think instead, in all seriousness, the, the Psalms and the Proverbs consist of units. Not just individual verses and individual Proverbs, but are part of larger, sustained, themed arguments. And a verse that worked one way to serve one unit earlier on in the book is repeated in belonging to a different unit later in the book for the same theological purposes. So this isn't, uh, oh, look at the writer saying the same thing twice. I don't know about you. I need to hear the same thing twice. And so praise God for the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 16, 25, here is this familiar passage from 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So this is not a description of all people. And the end point, the way of death, reminds us of the path, which is what a way for the metaphor of one's life means. This way, one's life, it is a path going toward an end point. And the book of Proverbs helps us be wise because it says, hey, if you're on this path, here's where it leads. Is that where you want to end up? This is helpful for growing up as well in, in discipling and mentoring and parenting young folks where we consider with them not just choices that are in front of them, but the paths that are comprised of these choices, where those paths lead, is that where you want to go? Because if you don't want to go there, then you need to stop making the choices that it will take you inevitably to that, to that space. There is a way that seems right. And that translation matters for us because seems right. It tells us beneath the surface, it's actually not the right path. It just appeared that way. Someone is engaging in faulty reasoning. And they thought that way it looked right. You ever been wandering somewhere, whether it's on a campground or just new territory that you're visiting, and you're thinking, I, I could have just sworn this was the right way, that this was the way I was going. It looked right, and I saw that tree or this store or this whatever. I, this looked like the way we were supposed to go. But something malfunctioned. Human memory <laughs> it tends to be the big culprit. And this way that ends to death didn't seem that way at the time. It looked like it wouldn't end up in that direction. Part of sin's effects on our lives is upon our reasoning. It is part of it has affected the way that we deliberate. We know this because there are image bearers who look at clearly prohibited and rebellious activities in the Word of God and they say, But for these reasons, I think it'll be fine if I live this way. I think if I do it, it'll just turn out differently. Or I think whatever consequences come up, I can manage that. And so we know that sin affects our reasoning because people are face to face with sin and say, well, but this way that seems right, it indicates for us faulty reasoning or some foolish ambition that is behind it. Sin's work upon our hearts and minds leads to a state of heart and mind where we cannot always trust where our hearts would take us. Proverbs, therefore, doesn't want your inner life or your heart's desires to be the moral barometer and compass for all of your decisions and evaluations. Instead, we have not only the Word of God, but the people of God. And in the book of Proverbs, those who refuse instruction and discipline are the fool. The fools are those who say, well, this seems fine to me. Thank you very much. And that way seems right to a man, except the end point is the way to death. How is it 
that we can fill the gap between what seems to be one way and then avoiding what will ultimately be the way to death. Receiving and submitting to godly guidance and counsel. Where we realize what seemed like a good idea at the time or whatever venture or whatever relationship or whatever opportunity that I hadn't thought this all the way through. And so with the help of others who fear God, they've helped me think better about this. And therefore, what seemed right, I've been able to avoid a path that's going to lead to very destructive ends because of guidance and help from the outside. None of us are immune from our for a need for these realities of the word of God and the wisdom for the people of God. So if we don't want to be those caught up in a life, live with just something that seemed like a great idea at the time, in a way that would end in death, then we need to be those who say, well, maybe I'm not seeing everything I need to see. Maybe I'm not looking at it from all the angles I need to approach it. I need some help. This verse 26 is a connection between work and desire. And I I think all of this unit will become more clearly connected as we work through it. But in verse 25, the path of the fool. And in verse 2016, the connection between work and desire. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Urges him on is language of uh, a task or some sort of pursuit. All right, we want to connect here that in verse 25, there's a way that somebody is walking. And in verse 26, this worker's appetite or or his mouth urges him on what's going on in this unit. To, To unearth, I think, what verse 26 means, we're looking at this what seems like an observation as a whole for anybody. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. I think the mouth and the appetite is meant to symbolize the overall physical needs to provide for oneself. And especially the idea of, well, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. And so quite literally, one's appetite and one's mouth. But, but more than that, the, the, the base drives in a, in a, in a heart that um, are met to some degree by work. So the worker has an appetite. And maybe the worker is like, well, listen, I don't, I don't care for this particular job or I don't enjoy this amount of hours, but I know that something deeper within me is going to help motivate me to go do this. The worker's appetite, his mouth urges him on, namely that that mouth is going to need food at some point, sooner the better. And in verse 26, it looks like just an observation in general. I think it is true apart from the unit, but apart from looking at anything else, that this looks like the thing true for anybody. However, In verses 25 through 30, that this verse here is a part of, there's such a negative framing of the heart, desires, and decisions, and path of the wicked that I'm I'm inclined to frame verse 26 in light of that, that this is not just about any worker, but maybe someone who does what they do for no greater reason than their own appetite. A worker's appetite works for him, and his mouth urges him onward. And that doesn't necessarily mean righteous work. It doesn't necessarily mean work justly accomplished and performed. It may mean, like other parts of Proverbs mean, that this person has an appetite for what needs to be some material need met for food or resources or wealth. And so he's looking at this and thinking, that's what's going to drive me and not necessarily in a righteous task or in righteous ways. So the appetite 
can't be the only thing that drives us if we're going to fear the Lord. The desire to provide or to, or to gain money for food or other things can't be the only thing that determines how and why we work. There must be something more. But you see, for the wicked, for the wicked, they are caught up in the sinful materialism of the day and the worldliness that entrances them. And there's not a larger story in their lives operating where they're trying to live for the glory of God. In fact, their appetite, their mouth might be the only thing that drives them. They are just pleasure centered in a worldly sense. And they just want more of what they think working will provide for them. They're not living for the glory of God or love of neighbor or a heart of generosity, a variety of ways in which earning and acquiring can be a blessing outside one's personal life. Rather, verse 26 might suggest a person who's looking to please simply himself for the sake of himself and for no one else. So I'm taking verse 26 to be framed by these other very negative depictions. A mouth guided by base desires. And the reason mouth or this person's appetite could be seen negatively is not just in the concepts, but what about the actual words in verses 27, 28, and 29 that, in de- that deal with someone's mouth or speech? For example, in verse 27, here is speech like a scorching fire. In verse 28, Someone who's dishonest and spreading strife is, is given, it's an example, uh, an example at the end of the verse, a whisperer, which is something that takes place with one's mouth. And then in verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Then in verse 30, at the very end of verse 30, the second line, he who purses his lips brings evil to pass. So not words from one's mouth, but some sort of physical gesture with the lips. So there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And the wicked don't realize how the way their desires and words work end up being a self-destructive way of living. They're convinced that if I could just get what my desires want, and if I could just achieve these manner of things outside of me, then I'm going to be satisfied. But of course, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us in Ecclesiastes 5, for the, for the pursuit of wealth, no man's heart is satisfied. In verse 26 here, this worker's appetite is followed in verses 27 and following by, by the theme of the mouth that continues. So I think all of this in this unit is connected with this theme of the wicked who with their words and appetites do not see the wicked and self-destructive things happening by their decisions and toward the lives of others. So here's the connection between work and desire in verse 26. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, if I'm, if I'm applying my, 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 my hand, my skills, my time, my investment in something that is acquiring a return, that is acquiring a return, and that is helping in my household or in the households of others, it is blessing and sustaining, why am I ultimately doing it? And verse 26 is an unsatisfactory answer. Oh, well, you know, the reason I've, I've got this, this work and the reason I'm applying myself is because I, this base need needs to be met. But is it any more than that for us? As people who claim to fear the Lord, is there anything greater that drives us? And that is a story of our lives that frames and shapes why we do what we do? 
our vocations and our pursuits, the things that uh, accrue income and the things that sustain lives and put food on the table and bless others with generosity, these things can't be motivated by the very same things that motivate people who don't know God. We claim to know God. And that means there's something deeper than and greater than our appetite that drives us. In verses 27 through 30, this unit concludes with a series of verses about a series of wicked people. They're they're given uh, different angles here. A worthless man plotting evil in verse 27. A dishonest man in verse 28. A man of violence in verse 29. They're all connected. They're talking about different ways wickedness can manifest And I assure you, when the wicked are setting out upon this, it seems good to them, but it's the way that ends in death. Their moral calculus is off. Their reasoning is faulty. Their love of neighbor is found wanting. In verse 27 through 30, here are a series of wicked people. This range of wrongdoers. And it's actually quite similar to an earlier part of Proverbs in chapter 6, verses 12 and following. Chapter 6.12 says a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. And he winks with his eyes and he signals with his feet and he points with his finger. With a perverted heart he devises evil and continually sows discord. That language sounds very similar to our passage tonight. A worthless man's plotting evil, spreading strife, enticing his neighbor, and winking with his eyes. That kind of language is found in Proverbs 6. But hey, Proverbs doesn't mind repeating itself. Especially if a new unit for a different direction of the argument, is going to uh, be able to be helped by that same kind of theme. So here is one of the wicked people in this series of verses 27 to 30. A worthless man plots evil. That just sounds like a strong adjective. A worthless man. It doesn't even say the wicked plot evil. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. You say, now, Solomon, how can you say that this man would be worthless when this person is made in the image of God? I don't think this is a denial of an image-bearing status. But people become like what they worship. And in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, this is, this is an incontrovertible, indisputable fact that we will imitate what we worship. And the worshipers of Proverbs, of, uh, of the Psalms and, and the prophets that speak about this idolatry, they indicate that the idol is nothing and so becomes like those who worship that idol, they also become as nothing. It's a statement about the vanity of what they do. It's a statement about the futility of all that they pursue. It doesn't mean they're not made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and honor. It means that they have forsaken the ways and wisdom of God, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and in their pursuit of wickedness and not of God, they have become like what they worship. They have become something lacking the substance that an image bearer knowing God and fearing God would have. A kind of gravity and centeredness. Instead, there's an instability. The worthless man. What's the worthless man characterized by? Well, sitting around deliberating about what wickedness they can get away with. That's what. This is what they spend their time doing. This is not, oh, they got, like spontaneously got caught up and weren't thinking. This is a work. They're planning evil. They wake up in the morning, what can I get away with to enrich myself at the expense of another? They're planning wickedness. 
That man is worthless because they are living in a way that is void of the substance an image bearer should be living out. And in that sense, their idolatry is showing and their wicked pursuits have ensnared their hearts. A worthless man plotting evil is certainly not deliberating on how to love neighbor. Because who is this evil going to affect? Well, people around them. Either people up close or people far away, but people are going to be impacted by these plots. And does this person care? They do not care because their goal is not loving others. Their goal is some appetite filled. That's what they live for. That's what motivates them. They don't live for anything deeper or nothing grander than what they can get that they think they're owed and due. What can I get and how quickly can I get it in from whom? A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like scorching fire. It seems that the second line illustrates the first point. It it is not all-encompassing of the first uh, line, but the worthless man plotting evil, what would that look like? Well, one example would be plots that look like speech that is false or accusatory, wicked words that spread like a scorching fire. When we think about scorching fires, I mean, there are fires burning right now in Greece that many arsonists, have uh, been arrested for starting. And these kinds of fires spread and bring great heartbreak and destruction. Speech like a scorching fire. Doesn't that remind you of James in James chapter 3 that the tongue is set on fire by hell itself? James gets these ideas and these images that are already rooted in the Old Testament. Our tongue can be like a fire. And when misused, our foolish speech can scorch and leave nothing in its wake that is left. One writer says, when the wicked is through with his victim, his life is like burned over earth, nothing left, barren, fruitless, and worthless. This means that their words are used in a way that is good, it seems, for the wicked, the way that seems right to the man. But in the end, not only is that wicked way a way of death, it has harmed many others along the way. Their speech is like a scorching fire. In verse 28, a dishonest man spreads strife. This is connected to verse 27 because plotting evil and scorching fire speech can take a form of dishonest words in verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife. Here's someone who is not committed to what is true. They're committed to what they can say that is useful to them at the moment. What do I need to say to get what I want? What do I need to say? What do I need to spread? What do I need to offer that's not based in reality or in accordance with the truth and justice, but rather, what can I say that is going to accomplish my agenda? And their agenda is not the truth. This man is a dishonest man. And one of the effects of unhinged speech where we are not committed to the truth is that strife, Conflict is an inevitable result. How could it not be? Because someone's heart and, and, uh, and tongue are living for what is worldly and out of an ambition that is nothing deeper than or greater than the flesh. And therefore, fleshly results ensue. Strife. Well, of course, dishonest people who spread strife can't be at the same time committed to being peacemaker and love of neighbor They're not living uh, according to or committed to truth. 
A whisperer separates close friends. It looks like at the end of verse 28, a whisperer is an example of the dishonest man at the first of the verse. So a dishonest man spreading strife, what could that look like? Well, it could look like somebody engaging in slander and gossip. And they're not committed to what's true. They just know that here's this opportunity, opportunity for me to say something, true or not, that's going to run down this other person's reputation or character in the ears of someone else. And one of the most detrimental effects of slander and gossip is that it can harm relationships that were initially quite close. Look at the end of verse 28. The whisperer separates close friends. Now, close friends aren't the only people that have to be impacted by gossip and slander, but surely people can testify around us and maybe even here at KBC of examples where some at some point along in their lives, they felt really close to someone and slander and gossip is something that brought a wedge there that was difficult to repair if it ever was. This is about destructive speech from a wicked tongue and a heart that's committed to nothing but an appetite being met. In verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor. More use of words in a wrong way. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. The way language reminds us of verse 25. See how this unit is connected in verse 25? The way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And there are some people who want you to join them. That way ends in death, and they're like, well, I don't want to be there by myself. Well, well, can I entice you into coming along and performing this wickedness with me? A man of violence enticing his neighbor is something that Solomon warned about in the opening chapter of the book. He's talking to his young son, and here's what he says in a form of preemptive parenting. Saying to his son, son, let's imagine you're ever in this situation, and someone says this to you, how should you respond? He says in Proverbs 1.9, don't forsake your mother's teaching. My son, in verse 10, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, hey, come with us, let's lie in wait for blood and ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let's swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. And we'll find all the precious goods and fill our houses with plunder. The appeal might not actually sound that way when the friends make the the pitch to uh, the, the young man Solomon is addressing. Let's lie and wait for blood and ambush the innocent without reason. They probably just say, hey, you know what? I bet that guy has a lot of money with him. Let's jump him. Let's take his money. Let's beat him to a pulp. And then you, can, you and I can split what's, uh, what's uh, uh, garnered. And here in chapter 1 of Proverbs, he recognizes that his son is going to face times where he will be enticed. And enticed by people who are willing for you to join them or be complicit in acts of violence. Why would somebody want you to be complicit in an act of violence? Because of something they believe they get from it inwardly or outwardly in terms of money. Some kind of result. And for us, we think, okay, if you see footage of people who are just attacked for no reason in different cities. And here's someone going along and they're uh, absolutely uh, just flanked by some sort of punch or object. And you think, why would someone act in the violent way that they do toward a fellow image bearer? Because they're not committed to loving neighbor. They're not committed to the truth. They're committed to their baser appetites, which in that moment are clearly distorted and out of accord with what would be a proper treatment of another human being. And they're living that out. And it's ugly. It's ugly. It's harmful. And there are people who would want you to join them in it. I think the father of Proverbs 1 also knows something about human nature. 
We might be less prone to do something by ourselves and more likely to do it if we're in a group. Because of social pressure. And here is someone in chapter 16 who might be enticed. A man of violence enticed to do it. He might not commit violence on his own. But if someone's drawing him, he's like, well, I want that person to like me. Or I want to be in her circle or his circle. And and I want to be welcomed and included. And so all of a sudden he realizes I'm involved in doing something I always would have thought is unthinkable on my own. But for fear of man. Or the desire to belong and be welcomed. There are certainly violent, wicked groups who will welcome people to join them in their wickedness. And, and the, the twistedness in it all, friends, is don't at some level all image bearers desire to be included and to belong and to have people that they can call people that they are associated with, who care about them, who know them. And when the people of wickedness and violence are that group for you, then the book of Proverbs has already warned us that those who walk with the wise will grow wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So verse 29 says, A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. This should affect not only the way we evaluate our relationships, but the ways in which we can encourage those in this, in, younger than us who might be even more susceptible to friendships and groups that would entice them. And we would say, but what about the way they're going? Is the way their feet are pointed, is that way a good way? Because in Proverbs 16, 29, there is a way that is not good that people will welcome you to join them on. Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But that doesn't just develop overnight. It's about discipleship and being formed as a man or a woman who fears the Lord over time with the people of God who love them, care for them, include them, and seek to raise them up together to know Christ. Lord willing, then when those moments of enticement come, they would see the egregious and outrageous nature of sin and its temptation for all that is and say that's bait with a hook in it. That might glitter and that might seem to appeal on the outside, but that is not only dishonoring to God, it is a path that ends in death for me. In verse 30, this uh, also calls to mind some kind of communication. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things, and he who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Well, I think this is a verse that requires us to think about more than one person involved in the exchange. But these are not necessarily words. These are facial expressions, okay? These are facial expressions. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. It's like Proverbs 6 that I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, Someone who's moving their foot in Proverbs 6 verses 12 and following or winking their eyes. Apparently, these were cultural gestures. Now, winking the eyes still communicates. We can think about how if someone's, maybe they're just lightly teasing and uh, someone's coming from the outside and you look over and you sort of wink at them. And, they're, they're, and then all of a sudden they're in on it and they're like, okay, okay, I see what's going on, okay. This is not a serious conversation or a moment. You know, we're just being lighthearted here. But this is a different kind of winking. This is a kind of winking where you are, you are bringing somebody in on something that not everybody is a, 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 in on that is a wicked plot. 
You are planning something that is dishonest and you're including someone, not just with your words of enticement, but with your facial gestures. You're saying, oh, you're with me. You see it, right? So you're winking your eyes. If someone's listening to this recording right now, you can't see me, but I'm I'm winking my eyes at the congregation. And the same thing will go in the pursing of the lips in a moment in verse 30. So y'all get ready for that. In verse 30, he who purses his lips. Now, what does this refer to? This is uh, maybe less obvious to us. The winking of the eyes translates from culture to culture, I think, with a a kind of lack of seriousness or something that seems to be the case but isn't really a wink might convey that. Pursing the lips confuses commentators. And so when people are writing about Proverbs, they're not altogether sure exactly what this would mean. But pursing the lips seems to like pull one's lips tightly together, right? Like, Okay, so I'm, I'm doing it for the recording. But, but nonetheless, it, when you, um, if you would imagine the idea that you're going to get away with something. I've seen, I've seen uh, younger folks make this exchange uh, facially with each other. If they, if they didn't get caught and they look at the other and they're like, and their lips pull together. And it looks like a sense of uh, we're in on it and we realize what's happened. And, and now we're, we're in the clear maybe. But he who purses his lips or winks his eyes in this way is exhibiting a kind of communication and a kind of glee that is about evil. So this isn't lighthearted, is it? It's wicked. In Proverbs 15, in verse 21, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. So when this wickedness is pursued and these plans are hashed and more than one individual is involved in it, not only their words, but their facial cues indicate their support with one another in this activity. The tragedy of it all is that it's wickedness they're involved in. They're not joyfully and gladly coming together in some sort of friendship or support for what would honor God. And build one another up. But what would most assuredly be foolish for their own lives and destructive toward the lives of others. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things and he who purses his lips brings evil to pass. So we return now to the first idea at the beginning of the sermon. That it is good for us to consider and meditate on the blessings and benefits of the way of wisdom. And to also reflect on the absolute foolishness and self-destructive path of folly and rebellion. So that we would be pressing upon our hearts in a way of remembrance, the discipline of remembrance. What's always the case day by day when we're facing choices and the desires of our inner appetite. What is it that drives us? What is it that we're living for? What story are we telling for our lives? This is a story of the scriptures. That is shaping from beginning to end and as a banner over us directing our lives unto what is wise and fears the Lord. Verses 25 through 30 are needful for our hearts. Because if we're just operating by our internal instincts and desires, then we might think something seems like a good idea. And we invite others perhaps to join us in it. But the way is in, ends in death. It dishonors the Lord. The wicked want their will be done, to be done. Their prayer would sound something like, my kingdom come and my will be done on earth and in my relationships. The believer's prayer is different. 
It's a concern with something more than base instinct and worldly desire. It is about the kingdom of God and the will of the Father that we pray would come and be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that would mean love of neighbor. And that we would be forgiving uh, others of sins and debts because God forgives us our debts. It's about trusting God for daily bread and praying that He would lead us not on the way of temptation. Those things occupy the prayers of the saints. They do not occupy the minds of the wicked. The wicked want their own kingdom to come and will to be done. And they love the way of temptation. And it's a lonely way sometimes. And so they want as many people to join them on it as possible. In pursuit of Christ, we close tonight with uh, reminders of this life and path we're on. Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Colossians 3, 5, Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. This is Solomon's word to us and Paul's word to us. Friend, we must put these things aside. He says in Colossians 3.8, you must put them all away. Anger and wrath, malice and slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let's pray together.